Private equity in Asia-Pacific is facing major challenges. High-profile regulatory changes, both in the US and in China, as well as ongoing geopolitical tensions, have given some investors pause over whether to continue investing in the world's second-largest private equity market. APAC's fundraising fortunes reflect this. I'm Alex Lin, Hong Kong Bureau Chief for PEI Group, and welcome to this episode of Spotlight, a podcast that delves into the very latest in private markets investing. I recently sat down with three of Asia's most senior fundraising experts to discuss APAC's fundraising outlook for 2024. Before we get to the discussion, a bit of data, which you can find on privateequitynational.com. Funds in the region collected just $49.2 billion last year, down 37% from 2022 and 60% less than in 2021. Only 187 funds held a final close in 2023, roughly half 2022's total and less than a third that of 2021. And now to meet our guests. Nicholas Amundsen is a Hong Kong-based partner at Monument Group. Over the past 29 years, Monument Group has raised and advised 138 billion in funds and transactions. Joining Nicholas is Vincent Ng, a Hong Kong-based partner and 17-year veteran of Atlantic Pacific Capital, which has executed on over 90 billion of capital-raising assignments. Completing the trio is Ricardo Felix, partner and head of Asia-Pacific at Asante Capital. Over the last 20 years, Asante's senior management team has advised on over 100 billion of private capital raisings. Nicholas, Vincent, Ricardo, welcome. Okay. Well, as we know from the the data, the fundraising figures are, I guess, pretty bleak and on somewhat of a downwards trajectory. That being said, obviously funds are being raised. I guess I'd like to ask then, as obviously three fundraising experts very much in the trenches when it comes to raising these funds, actually how difficult is it right now to raise an Asia fund? If I just start with uh, Nicholas. Well, it really depends on the geography and the strategy. So, you know, if you have the right product, it's actually very easy. And if you have the wrong one, it's very difficult. If you're lucky enough to be uh, sort of a Japanese middle market bite manager at the moment, I think fundraising in 2024 actually looks as good as it's ever been. Very similar to the 2016-17 time period. However, if you're a Chinese GP, you're probably facing the toughest market that you've ever faced. And uh, Ricardo, are you experiencing the same? I would agree with the caveat that short geography and strategy matters, but there's this sort of flight towards safety establishment and not even top quartile, but maybe top 10, top 5% GPs where it can be easy, including in China. A couple of managers have been oversubscribed. And thankfully, as Nicholas said, if you have the right product in front of the right LP community, it raises uh, having said that, it's certainly the worst year we ever experienced last year, and it looks like this year in terms of um, the wider market. Emerging players, it's the worst time to launch a first-time fund, and it's the highest fail rate that we've seen. And so, Vince, I mean, I guess, does this then translate into just a bunch of China funds that are essentially stuck with their fundraise? And I mean, if so, kind of what's the outcome there? What, what choice do managers have? I think firstly, I concur with all the comments earlier and, and just put in context, this is one of the toughest environments I've seen in my career in raising capital, even worse than GFC. Any issue you can envision that could derail a fundraising is apparent, whether it's geopolitics, actual wars and everything that's affecting LPs. So that's the broader context. Again, not to be too gloomy, but to answer your question, beyond just China funds, obviously there's a lot of China funds that are stuck and are to be frank, in an existential sort of situation. A lot of them are now restructuring one form or another. There are reducing number of pure play China funds. A lot of them are China plus, China plus something, whether it's geography, China, you know, US, Europe, Southeast Asia, you could name it. So 
there's a big transition that's going to happen. I don't know necessarily that's going to be sufficient for them to survive through this current cycle. A lot of them are running out of money. Um, and for the sentiment to come back, it will take a little bit of time. Um, that being said, once numbers do flow back and people can see that money can be made, I would imagine money will start flowing back in. But to what quantum and in what sort of time frame, that's the big question mark. And so to your point, I guess, about China funds sort of expanding perhaps into to new markets, things like that. I mean, how is that received by LPs? I would say a small percentage. It's received reasonably well, partly because they've already established offices or deals and track record in those markets that have now added onto their sort of offering. So it's not coming from nothing, but the vast majority are coming from nothing in the sense that they've not had track record in those markets. They've never done deals. They don't have an office. So to convince investors, this group, ABC Fund, can now do deals in this geography that they've never touched. It's it's a tough ask. Right. And I mean, I guess then coming back to your point, Nicholas, about certain funds doing better than others in this environment. So things like Japan, I think that you mentioned, is it a sort of straight swap? So capital that perhaps, you know, would two, three years ago have gone to a China fund is now just going to a Japan fund or are LPs thinking about it more from a, well, I can still get the same return from perhaps, you know, the US mid-market. So why would I bother going all the way to Tokyo? Uh, I think it's a combination of, of the two. Right? I think that historically what we've seen is that uh, sort of there would be the straight swap. So I would do sort of four funds less in China this year, and I'm going to replace that with uh, sort of a fund in each of these geographies. I think if we're looking at those four allocations, the first one probably flows directly to the home market. That could be the US or it could be to Europe. The second allocation probably goes to developed Asia country, and uh, it would be a, a primary in Japan. Yeah, the third allocation might go to you know, another developed country, it would be a yeah, secondary in Korea, and the, or the fourth allocation ends up being a co-investment in Australia. The, I think the important thing here is that the way that LPs are looking at the world today, even though there are separate sort of buckets for primary, secondary, and co-investments, when they're thinking about allocations, they do it taking a step back, looking at it much more holistically. Mm. And I mean, Ricardo, on this point, I mean, you stressed, I suppose, the importance of, you know, being top quartile, being perceived as perhaps a safer pair of hands. How much depth, though, is there in these markets? I mean, presumably being top quartile means less if there are only four buyout funds from which to choose, right? Yeah, top quartile is not sufficient anymore, I think, as I mentioned Maybe there's a couple of things. There's the capacity of that GP to showcase consistency than DPI, which is the, the, the key question mark that we get across Asia Pacific, particularly in China, VC, India, and Southeast Asia also being famous for lack of liquidity. But I just want to go back to a couple of points. I agree with what Nicholas said in terms of almost this reverse globalization approach when um, the capital that particularly U.S. investors were deploying into China. It's not a zero-sum game. It, doesn't, it hasn't gone to the second largest economy, India. It hasn't gone to developed Asia. For the most part, it just simply has remained in the U.S. or has been consolidated. Reops have been more difficult to come by, although they still happen. But the four or five China GPs that they would have had it's gone down to two, and this is particularly true for the endowment and foundation community. And these two are those top 5% players that have showcased some capacity to return capital. And then the rest has moved away from APAC. I think the, the issue with the direct translation from China to Japan or Korea, structurally, it's just not viable because the supply of quality GPs in each of these jurisdictions is quite limited. And 
you can't structurally go in and do 15 or 10 GPs in China like you would and do the same in Japan or Korea or Australia. So there are just aren't that many. And you end up being you know, highly overlapped in terms of your portfolio allocation, but also start competing against each other. And so you can do one big, one middle in each of these geographies, but the third one is a tough push because the markets just aren't deep enough and there aren't enough supply of new managers coming in dissimilar to what was happening in China for a long time. And I, th I think sort of to put numbers to that, uh, we have the, one of our clients, uh, Japanese buyout fund, but is not in the market. When we looked at the number of meetings that they've had in the last six months, they've actually had 100 LP interactions, either Zoom calls or in-person meetings in Tokyo. This is a manager that's not in the market. They have not been on the roadshow. This is just purely inbound in the second half of uh, 2023. And they've had already 17 in-person meetings in Tokyo this year, you know, and we're only at the end of uh, January. So I think that that sort of shows how skewed demand and supply actually is at the moment when it comes to LP's interest in a particular market and trying to get into fund. And anecdotally, I also understand that there's another Japanese buyout manager that is currently sort of in the market and they're sorting out their allocations. And the last was that there are 12 sizable LPs, including a famous US endowment that everyone would like to have in their fund. And they were just turned down because, you know, in a $500 million fund, you're not going to be able to take a $100 million investor, no matter what the name is. And uh, I think that's something else that just shows where the fundraiser market is sort of heading towards in 2024. I mean, those figures are, are crazy. What is kind of driving this? I mean, it seems sort of, from my perspective, obviously sitting outside of this, that, that it's almost overnight that everyone's just decided that Japan is the next hottest thing and everyone wants to get into a Japan fund. Is it just because they have to deploy some capital in Asia and this is the kind of safest and perhaps best place to put that money? Or is there something about Japan that's driving everyone to want a piece of that? It's always going to be a combination of things, but coming back to Ricardo's point around DPI, so Japanese managers have consistently shown DPI throughout market cycles. And we work with two groups. We're lucky enough to work with two groups in Japan, in the lower middle market. One of them had seven exits in 2023, and the other one had 10 exits in 2023. And that's, you know, from people that manage, call it $500 million funds. So uh, even in the most difficult of times, they manage to pull off IPOs, they do secondaries, they do trade sales, there's so many exit routes. And when LPs are looking at what they can do, you know, this sort of DPI really becomes sort of really attractive. And I think it's not just a regional thing, it's a global thing. Very few European managers manage 10 exits in 2023. Very few, uh, you know, US managers manage that number of exits in the last 12 months. And I think that is the thing that sort of catches people's attention. And it's very, for a very good reason. I mean, Vince, when I first came to Asia five years ago, I remember one of the very first sort of narrative trends that we were talking about at the time was DPI and, and kind of specifically DPI in China. Obviously, I'm guessing the landscape for generating DPI is worse now than it even was then. And DPI was, was a problem back then as well. So what does that mean in practice? I mean, is there going to be a wave of sort of, you know, perhaps attempted GP-led secondaries as Chinese managers attempt to just get something on the board? So DPI has always been a Achilles heel, if you will, for China. 
back, unfortunately, back then, you know, at least it was compensated by nice MOICs and IRRs and a good tailwind and strong demographics and macro and all the good stuff. So to some degree, it was, it was important and LPs complained, but they were still getting the perceived alpha out of it, more so than in most um, jurisdictions. So that was helpful. In an environment where MOICs challenged, IRRs challenged, exits most certainly challenged and delayed, that DPI is an issue and will be a pertinent one. You know, right now, every LP DPI is the first number they start talking about. So that's critical. To your point, yes, there will be a lot of GP-leds. There will be a lot of secondary activities of all sorts to try and juice up the DPI, reestablish the LP base, diversify it further, particularly for groups that had overexposure to, let's say, the US market, which is most hit in terms of geopolitical concerns. Um, secondaries will be and is a key driver for a lot of the GP conversations we're having with China because a pure primary conversation is just difficult, nigh impossible. But again, uh, you know, we'll need to see how that pricing market develops over the next period. Nothing in China was looked at if it didn't have at least a 50% discount last year. In terms of the Chinese GP leads then, I mean, presumably there's not a great number of potential interested buyers for these anyway. So is it sort of the ultimate buyer's market, given that there's this sort of confluence of no one really wanting it, bar a few, and marks having already come down, I guess, just as a result of the macro environment in China and less dry powder there? There are still buyers. The adventurous, the strategically minded, I would imagine there's going to be good alpha to be had in the longer term when the dust settles and things come back. But the, for the vast majority of institutional LPs, that's just a risk too steep, too hard to overcome at this moment in time. But once their fellow LPs start, they start seeing deals actually being done at reasonable prices and they can convince the IC, you know, there's president cases in their fellow community. I think that then starts turning. But again, that will take a little bit of time, but I'm cautiously optimistic it will happen sometime within this year. And maybe say two things on the DPI and a secondary conversation. Um, first, on the China front, China obviously has been historically constrained on the exit avenue by the U.S. IPO market, with that being now a big obstacle. Um, domestic markets and Hong Kong stock exchanges have been dry for now 18 months, and so it leaves the Chinese VC community with very little avenues for exit, and that seems like it's going to um, remain for a while. That's a big contrast to developed Asia-Pacific. As Nicholas mentioned, Japan has consistently returned capital. Australia, the same. Southeast Asia, quite choppy, but actually you start seeing quite a bit of different options for exits and on the trade sale aspect. A few of our managers in the buyout mid-market space have only exited through corporates um, and strategic sales and consistently over the past year. So Yes, uh, I think liquidity obviously will continue to be a big topic, but the exit avenues everywhere but China ha will have a bit of an advantage. On the secondary side, particularly on GPLA transactions, it's such a nascent process in, in Asia Pacific. Japan just did their first proper, I guess, uh, CV last year. We see conversations about two, three others happening in China probably 50% of the GPs out there are having some form of GP-led conversation. The question here is that the incentive to do them is probably typically not the, the most adequate since it's been incentivized 
for a primary fundraising purpose. Hence, maybe the asset's not the adequate one. The buyers and the pricing discovery, as we mentioned, will be, the gap will be too wide. So I don't think there's going to be that many closing. There may be some trying to, but the execution part will be the difficult one. From our perspective, we've actually done a couple, which have been more sort of LP-driven processes, which allow for a package transaction that then helps the primary fundraise. But those are on and off and very ad hoc rather than a full-on marketing process. I mean, is there an argument to be made that for those who back the right process in China, I mean, this may well be one of the best vintages for them to buy into ever in the sense that if you have capital to deploy and everything is extremely cheap and you're buying into the fund for an extremely attractive price, that may well pay off, provided obviously it ends up being a good bet. I think that it all depends on what timeline you have in mind, because just because you're buying something that's cheap doesn't mean necessarily that, that you'll be able to sell it expensive. And that is the, uh, the sort of at the end of the day, that's what all private equity funds do. They buy on the cheap and they sell expensive, and uh, that's part of their value creation. And uh, I think uh, you get half of it now, but uh, you know it depends on your patience and what's your time horizon and how long you're willing to wait. Because to Vincent's point earlier, it could be two years, five years, maybe 10 years before uh, there's really kind of an upswing in the Chinese sort of market. It's going to be difficult to say what's going to happen geopolitically over the next five years, given that uh, the US election is happening at the end of the year. And with a new administration in charge, that might delay global relationships in more than one way by at least another four years. And uh, hopefully there won't be too many wars in the process. So... um, very uncertain times. I'm, I'm glad you brought politics into the conversation because, you know, I want this to get polemic. Obviously, this year is, is fantastically interesting for political processes with India and Indonesia, I guess, being the, the largest economies in Asia, um, having a presidential vote this year. Obviously, the U.S. will dictate a lot of what happens for U.S. investors looking into deploying more or less into China. And so I think... My view is the investor community might have this sort of short-terministic approach to what ultimately is a very long-term product that you're deploying capital into. And when we get various different investors saying, well, we got to wait for the outcome of a certain political process for us to make a decision on whether we invest or not in the next 12 months, I ultimately feel, and this might be controversial, if you're back in a certain region, it should be for the long-term fundamentals of it rather than the short-terministic political goals or outcomes. And so I agree that ultimately, if you are that LP and you're putting your neck in the line, like Vincent said, uh, for a product that in the short term might backfire, say Taiwan war, why did I back China? I might lose my job for doing that. I can understand that. But ultimately, if you see the long-term macro fundamentals of that particular region, you're putting your money for that reason, and you know your money is going to be working for 10, 12 years. And, and to Ricardo's point, the political side, I, I totally agree. Similar to FX, it's great to buy into Japan right now because FX is low. But 101 finance is, you know, you're in the long-term asset class. It really shouldn't dictate your in and out because you really can't time the market. And it should be done at the CIO level where you're hedging across the portfolio. That being said, on a practical side, it is a nice bit of juice up alpha if you can get a bit of you know, incoming Delta on the FX to help. And with 50 plus elections this year covering half the population, politics is everywhere. Whether on the micro level, impacts on the sector, the big ones, you know, it's going to be a very topical item that every committee will need to discuss. 
How do you underwrite it? Or if you even should underwrite it, that's a different story. Because to Ricardo's point, you shouldn't be. Because in some countries, political parties change. The governance change. Some don't. But you know, but under, trying to underwrite that and crystal ball gaze that, it's a false game because you, you just can't. I mean, I guess you know every LP that, that we interview is very keen to stress that they are long-term investors. They take a you know long-term horizon. But the fact that so few now are investing into China would suggest that actually they're not right. I guess if we take what Ricardo was saying, then. So I mean, I guess why why is that? It it really depends. If we take uh, you know a, lo- a lot of sort of organizations here in sort of in Asia, which naturally will have more of a home bias towards the region. Say the Japanese, the Koreans, they are appointees that take on a role for three years. They work in that role and then they get promoted and they take up an HR position in London or something along those lines. So, you know, there's a mismatch in terms of the assignment of their job with the life of a fund. So if you're only in the role for three years, you know, you're never going to see, all you do is take on the risk. And uh, you're never going to see the returns on that risk. You're not even going to pass it on to your successor. It's going to be your successor's successor that will see the benefits of the investment decisions that you make today, because you're not going to get the realizations for another, you know, five to ten years. So I think that's a kind of a structural issue with investment professionals within the sovereign wealth funds, within the insurance companies, the Japanese pension funds, etc. Their employment contracts doesn't uh, sort of match up. So. Uh, they're going to go with the decision, you can't get fired for buying Coca-Cola. So therefore, I, I'm going to go with KKR. And if that goes sideways, at least I'm not going to lose my job because everyone else did the same thing. I couldn't agree more. This is something that's been a concern of mine for the past five years. It's this short-term structural approach to a long-term solution you're trying to put in front of a portfolio construction process. Maybe a few other factors that come into play that we've seen Headline risk has been consistent, particularly, again, for the endowment and foundation community, who tends to be thought leaders. The first ones to go into China, it was them. The first ones to develop a a mature portfolio for China VC was endowment and foundation community. But also it's them that have the biggest risk in terms of backing something that would go against the general mandate of a certain political establishment. Um, So that's been a big pushback. I remember... One of the countries I cover in, in Asia, in the run-up to GFC, you know, a huge amount of capital deployment into the sector globally. GFC hit, everyone got scared. A lot of those programs to next point, there were a lot of rotations in the team every three years. They stopped investing for three years. And then when the markets came back, they started coming back in. Then you end up looking at the portfolio. They're always in the most expensive vintages and not the best vintages. So in hindsight, they've for a lot of those entities, they've now realized that's a problem. So they've categorically been telling me, you know, we're going to be consistent. As an SAA, we'll consistent stay within that parameter. Obviously, on a TAA side, we'll do some adjustment plus and minus. But we've learned from our lessons from the past. We can't be in and out absolute format because it just skews the portfolio. But to your point about China, the issue here is more fundamental in the sense that if it was purely a macro downturn, yes, LP should look through that and say, we're long-term, we can ride through that macro downturn as we do for any jurisdiction. But you overlay that with a country-specific, executive, political-specific element that can rule out certain sectors overnight or have material 
pronouncements over a large swath of the economy, which you have no control over, that adds a second element. Then you overlay that with a material geopolitical uncertainty to the highest degree in the sense that literally anything can blow up in, in five seconds because of political whims. You add those three layers together, it makes that China context that much more difficult to underwrite. It's kind of like a perfect storm in the sense that, yes, I want to see the long term. Yes, I want to ride through the waves. But you overlay all of those different dynamics to that. It's not seen in most places and it's not been experienced by most professionals. That makes it that much more difficult. Everyone now seems to be sort of suggesting or there's this, I suppose, sort of received wisdom that India is in essence a sort of new China when it comes to private equity. And and obviously where once people seemed very cautious, everyone now seems extremely bullish on India as a market. I guess, is that confidence merited? And is there currently the depth in Indian private equity to absorb even any of, of I guess, kind of those China allocations? I think my view here is you need to dissect between the macro and the micro. On the high level of it, sure, India has the components that China had maybe 15 years ago. Demographically, it's obvious. Structurally, the economy looks a little bit like China did 15 years ago. And sure, the GDP and GDP per capita will grow in tandem as they had done. That's a macro story. I think any economist would kind of dismiss that pretty quickly when it comes down to private capital being raised and deployed. The two economies couldn't be more different. And for that reason, I don't think it's a straight swap. I don't think we've seen it's a straight swap at all. India has two things, a more developed buyout landscape than China for a variety of reasons. I think a lot of the mid-market or mid to SME type of um, assets that are family-owned or corporate-owned have been more akin to receiving private capital uh, and giving up ownership and giving up control over the past decade than, than China. I guess it's created this landscape of 10 or so GPs that have raised consistently a capital to deploy in the mid-market buyout space. Debt capital markets also are a bit more developed, both in the private and in the banking side. The VC space is highly fragmented, probably more fragmented than China's in the sense that there's so many emerging players and the highest fail rate I've seen in emerging markets is, is, is Indian. The capacity for some first-time funds to raise a subsequent vintage is the lowest I've, uh, I've seen, even compared to sub-Saharan Africa. There's a reason for that. Again, back to the family-owned businesses and corporate-owned businesses that set up a P arm, they tend to be misaligned in the long term when they see the DPI is not coming through and they want their money back and they don't raise third-party capital, then that uh, firm disappears and you'll have it in your numbers. So that's a long-winded way to say, yeah, India is definitely exciting. I think it's just after Japan, probably the second for this year in terms of appetite from what we hear from the LP community but certainly not a comparison point to the PE fundraising story of China. I, I, yeah, I, I would agree. The next China isn't India. The next China is China. We leave it at that. I think uh, sort of in kind of conversations that we've had with the investors about India, I think there's a couple of sort of key themes that appear that are quite interesting. So traditionally, if we're looking at what happened in Japan in 1617, the people that came back to Japan and invested in Japan in, when Japan took off, you know, having been kind of in everyone's bad books following the GFC, was the people that had missed out on those vintages. Or they'd had investments in Japan, they put them on hold, 
and then they came back and sort of backed the economy again on the private equity side. In India, I think it works a little bit differently. The most likely investors today that were able to convert into sort of India funds, and I'm not talking about re-ups, I'm talking about new relationships, it's actually people that have less exposure to India rather than more exposure because they haven't gone through the cycle of the challenging DPI story in India. They have a different view of India because they've been active in the last sort of five years on the public side. And India on the public side has really delivered. So now they're thinking, well, we've done really well on the public side, we should look at the private side. And they're sort of positively predisposed to sort of making investments. So that's a little bit different, I think, from other markets and different points in the cycle. I think the other thing, I mean, in particular when it comes to sort of India VC, is that whereas everyone went into India and did their market mapping last year and looked at it and said, you know, we've we got to find something there. It's really interesting. When they came back, they quite often came back and said, you know, yes, we have the macroeconomic tailwinds. We've had a few high-profile IPOs happening and all the rest of it. But the one part that's still missing is the DPI. So we're coming back to the DPI story. I think that in 2024, the number of commitments to the India VC space will increase and we'll see sort of an inflow of capital. It's going to be at a subscale level. It's more that LPs are strategically trying to get a foot in the door rather than get a full financial benefit of it. And, and they're not going to deploy their allocations fully. They're going to hold back on the money and just put in as little as possible to keep a future relationship. I'm afraid we're quickly running out of time. So I just want to put you all on the spot. Obviously, we've seen the number of funds half and then half again past few years. Capital obviously has come down from 2021. It's less than half last year. So I guess if we were looking back from next January at 2024, where do we think those numbers will sit? Do you think they'll stay roughly the same? Do you think they'll come down yet again? Or will we see a slight increase, Prince? Contextually, I'm an optimist at heart, but I'm also a pragmatist given the current environment. I would say if I was a betting person, it would plus or minus 10% where we are today. No major drop off because it's already pretty far down. And the dust is slowly settling for the reality check for all of these geographies. But it's not going to be a major jump up because there's no catalyst for that, particularly in a very uncertain year ahead. So plus or minus 10%, I think is kind of where we're at, where we will be in 12 months time. By number of funds and by capital raised? By capital raised. By number of funds, I think there's a lot of funds that need to raise money. There's a lot of funds that have run out and need to one form or another be in the market. But by, so by the number of funds, there's going to be a skyrocketing number of number of funds. But by actual quantum of raised, I would say plus or minus 10%. But that's funds in the market versus funds closing, right? Correct. Correct. Yeah, I'd say it's evident that Asia-Pacific disproportionately feels the brunt of global reduction in fundraising. APAC tends to be the third bucket, if at all, in, from, from an LP's allocation perspective. And as we know, most of the capital comes from the U.S. So I don't suspect there's going to be an immediate correction in four quarters. So my expectation would be that it remains roughly at the same levels as um, 2023. I do think from a 
from numbers perspective, it's probably going to be a reduction just simply because of this bifurcation trend where some of the larger names just raise more capital, say pair of hands approach, and emerging players just simply try and hold on before having to launch, maybe stick to deal by deal, uh, something to that effect, but we see on the down cycles. So that may end up in a lower number of funds with the same roughly amount of capital raised would be my prediction. I'm going to go lower than that, I think. The reason for that is I think that in the 2023 numbers, there's still a fair bit of overhang in terms of managers that were in the market in 2021, 2022, and then finally had their final closes in 2023. So I think that the numbers might be a little bit sort of skewed. I don't think that much money was actually raised in 23. It was just the final closes. So both capital and the number of funds. I think there's another sort of observation that we, we should build into this, and that is that coming back to the point where as people historically had looked at sort of primary fundraisers and committed to primary funds, investors today, as they're allocating capital, are doing primaries, they're doing GP-led secondaries, they're doing co-investments. And that's going to continue to be a growing part of the overall capital that's being raised. So my prediction is that primary fundraising numbers are going to continue to come down, whereas uh, GP-LEDs as well as co-investments are going to continue to go up. So on a balanced side, you know, we're going to be deploying just as much capital, but uh, you know, it's just going to come in different forms. Absolutely. Well, looking forward to uh, having this conversation again next January. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Fantastic. Well, uh, Nicholas, Ricardo, Vince, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. That's all for today. That again was Nicholas Amundsen of Monument Group, Vincent Ng of Atlantic Pacific Capital, and Ricardo Felix of Asante Capital. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or at any of PEI Group's various titles online, like Private Equity International. I'm Alex Lin. Thanks for listening.